Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this new day that you've given us, a new day in which we have the privilege of offering up to you our praises and seeing your glory displayed in our world. Father, today as we meet together, our hearts are full of gratitude to you. In the midst of all the things that are going on in our lives, we have this opportunity to pause and to gather together to fellowship, to sing, to look into your word. You are a gracious God indeed. And I pray that as we, uh, as we explore this portion of your word, uh, this first service this morning, that you would direct our thoughts, that, that you would be our focus, and that we would be blessed and encouraged in our Christian lives. And so with all of this in mind, we thank you and pray uh, in the name of our Blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I'm uh, pinch hitting today for, for uh, Ty. And, uh, and so I'm just, I'm, I'm honored and privileged to be able to, to be here this morning for our Sunday school hour and, and to open up the word of God. Um, our text this morning is one that I know you're all familiar with. So... Um, it's not going to be new uh, for us, probably some of our favorite verses in the entire Bible. And so you're familiar. So I'm hoping and praying that this time will uh, be a reminder to us of some great and precious truths uh, from the Word of God and that they will encourage our hearts as we strive to walk this Christian walk. That. That is from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And our text that we're going to focus primarily on uh, is uh, found in verses 31 through 35. For the sake of a little broader context, I'm going to read from verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 18, Paul writes... For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For though for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a precious passage from the heart of our Father. So I want us to spend a few minutes to explore this and I trust encourage our hearts because I think that some of us may need our hearts encouraged in various ways. I want to start off making this observation that a good friend of mine once said to me, I know God loves me. That's what God does after all God is love but I don't think he likes me very much. Now, I know this, this, this brother, and, and that comment was not based upon what the Puritans called frowning providences in his life. It wasn't based on circumstances. He knows better than that. It was based on his own behavior, his own felt sense of this proclivity to sin. His proneness to wander. And it was hard for him to imagine that God could like someone like him. And I have to tell you that there are times when that resonates with me. I have that same kind of a sense. I'm so often focused on my poor performance that while I'm thankful 
for God's grace and mercy, I feel as if he surely gives them to me only grudgingly. After all, he knows me. He knows my heart. It's as if he says, I'm disappointed in you. But since I'm a gracious God, I'll be merciful. This perspective, Paul teaches us, most definitely does not reflect the heart of God toward his elect. We have... have, uh, we see in, in, in Romans chapter 12 later on, we see of, of how we ought to be responding to the mercies of God. Just real quickly, I'll just zip over there to Romans chapter 12, um, uh, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I read those words and they're beautiful words and I think, but I'm not always transferred in my mind. Verse three, for by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. I suspect that sometimes I think of myself more highly than I ought to think. Um, We see in verses, I think, uh, look at verse, uh, well, I'll read to you. Um, All through, let let love, verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. And he goes on and on in chapter 12 here. And he shows us this this is what, how we ought to be responding by the mercies of God. As recipients of the mercies of God. And so what do I do? I look at myself and I see this standard because of my own poor performance in these things. Paul's exhortation often produces guilt, sometimes fear. Not the loving response to him that it should invoke. If if you can identify with this, and I, I know some of you can because I've talked with some of you about these very things, let's think through for a few minutes this morning what the Word of God, what Paul is teaching us in this passage. You see, we need to see the heart of God that is behind His mercies. We're aware of His mercies. But let's look at the heart of God behind His mercies. Why has he been merciful to you? Why has he been merciful to me? And how will that impact our understanding of our relationship with God in this life? What does God's heart behind his mercies mean for us? 
John Calvin writes. Now, we possess a right definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed in our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Tim Keller said this, what we need is not outer applause, nor inner applause, but rather the applause of God. Not just his pardon, but the thunderous wild praise of God, the delight of God. That is what we need to realize, to comprehend, to embrace the delight of God for us. You see, in Paul's mind, justification by faith equals God is for us. God is for us. Consider very briefly with me a very, very quick and brief cursory overview of Romans 1 through 8. And this is going to be really quick. But this is for, as we see in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, this is for the elect. This is for the people of God. Those ones who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God saw you in all your self-righteousness, your helplessness, your sin and rebellion. And he loved you anyway. In that context, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who has done all your righteousness, all your righteous works for you, standing as your covenant head and redeeming you in spite of your continuing sin and failure. The Holy Spirit indwells you and empowers you to seek those things above. And to embrace God as your father. Justification by faith means that the triune God is fiercely determined to see you become like Christ. This has been his plan for all eternity. And nothing in all creation can block, divert, or negate his plan for you. What plan again? To see you become like Jesus. In fact, he guarantees that all things will work together for your good. In other words, God initiated this relationship. He has done this. His love is eternal and unconditional. He has done it all for you, you are in Christ. He delights in you. He likes you. And he is for you. Because of Christ, he delights in you. But as we think, as we focus of our relationship with God and, and, and on a day-by-day 
in the realities of our daily, not yet completely sanctified lives, our own brokenness often leads us to focus on our performance, on our works. And the end result is that we often live with guilt and fear, an underlying, nagging, troubling concern, a sense that God is displeased with us. Maybe he even regrets adopting us. Well, God is well aware that our performance is far below what we desire. And oh yes, we do desire godly lives and godly performance. And in chapter 7 of Romans, and especially verses 15 through 24, we see Paul articulating the fact God knows uh, our, our failures, our faults. He knows that. This is not a newsflash to him. He knew this before the foundations of the world. If he were disappointed, he would have been disappointed then. As a matter of fact, then he would have established his eternal decree regarding us. He knows this. But we stand in Christ, not in our performance. He, Jesus, is our righteousness. Can you lay hold of that thought? He is our righteousness. Well, that's Romans 1 through 7. The first part of 8. <laughs> that brings us to our text. And Paul's triumphant conclusion to this whole discussion of God's mercies. Let's move quickly. I want us to consider by way of Application, five affirmations, five affirmations found in verses 31 through 35. Let me read those verses again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And so regarding our status and relationship with God then, First of all, I want us to consider that there is no opposition. There is no opposition. From verse 31, the people and the forces who oppose us, they don't matter. Verse 31, what, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We have here, a paragraph, uh, paragraph dominated by uh, judicial imagery. We can imagine the verdict moment of a trial 
in the courtroom of heaven. We stand before God. And how will he rule? Paul tells us here. He says, since God is for us. And that word if is translated if can properly and rightly be translated since. Since God is for us, with all the meaning of that phrase, he is for us. The court, the judge rule for the accused, not guilty. The verdict has been rendered. Since God is for us, and, and it is God who is for us, the one who created and controls all things, the one who is working all things according to his will, the one who has all power and all authority, he is for us. And since it is this one since it is God who is for us, our text asks, who can stand against us? It doesn't matter who or what stand in opposition to us. It doesn't matter, for God is for us. Wow. It's amazing. And there is no opposition. And we know, but I remind you, opposition will come. Opposition does come, right? It comes to us. But there is no opposition when it stands, when it deals with our relationship and our standing before the merciful God. There's no opposition. No opposition can possibly succeed against us all things even that opposition will work together for our good and we're going to refer back to that but in verse 37 we see this in in the text here but we'll come back to this in a minute God's love for us and his plan to make us like Christ cannot be derailed even by our own poor performance. There is no opposition. No one or no thing can ultimately stand in opposition to us who God is for. But let's next consider that there is Secondly, no deprivation. There's no deprivation that, super, that, that, uh, that, that succeed in thwarting God's plan of mercy for us. You see this in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, all things, the needs that are so pressing upon us, the needs that we have. There is no deprivation. How do we know that God is for us? Been making a big point of this, haven't I? 
How do we know that? It says, he has already crucified his own son for us. His own son for us. He didn't spare. And when he, when he says that, he, he didn't spare what? He didn't spare what we rightly deserved. The full guilt and condemnation of our sin was upon him. God didn't spare his own son. It was his own son that he, that he delivered up. He delivered him up in a sacrifice of atonement and propitiation. He gave him up for us all. All. Brethren, we can, we can look at people and individuals that we know who are very godly. And we admire them. And we wish we were like them in many ways. And we respect them. And we think, surely God is pleased with them. Boy, are they going to have a mansion when they get to heaven. <laughs> I do that. I know I'm going to be living in the shack down by the river. But what a, what a river. It's going to be more of a man cave, I think. But nevertheless, we know those people. And we admire them. Ah, yeah, I get it for them. No, no, that's us. That's us. We poor, miserable, sorry individuals who just want to love Jesus. The Father gave him up for us. For all of us. Now, note I, I just need to make a point because it would be inappropriate to, to ignore this. Not, Paul's not talking here about all human beings, lest we think that thought. Verse 33 tells us this is, the context is, is all the elect that he's talking about. For, but for all of those who are in Christ Jesus, all of us, all. He's referring to there is no opposition. Now, having given up Jesus, he will graciously give us all things. And there is the no deprivation, isn't it? An argument is being made from the greater to the lesser. It's kind of a, if this, then this. And we all go, well, yeah. No duh. If, if he gave up his own son, how will he not give us what he needs? Who are we? But he gave Jesus for us. So therefore, the, 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 the thought is that, that surely there can possibly be no legitimate argument. There's no thought that he would not Give us all things. He gave his son for us. He did not withhold that. God's people, we know that, but by the way, this is of course not, we're not talking about materialistic prosperity teaching. It, this, there's no context in which this is telling us. So if we give this to God, he will give even more to us. Or if we do this, he will do that. That's not what is being mentioned here. He did this and he will do that. 
That's what it is. And we are just the, we are just the recipients of his incredible grace and mercy here. We know God's people do experience temporal need, sickness. And as we experience here at Pacific Hope Church right now, we're super sensitive to the reality that God's people do experience death. We know that. Okay? But God's destiny for us cannot be frustrated by any circumstances, right? Verses 38 and 39 again, for I'm sure that neither death nor life. And frankly, sometimes I think death is preferable to life. Neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can then pray with confidence that he will meet our needs. And we keep in mind that he knows better than we do what we need. He knows this. Our greatest need, and there's no argument or confusion here, our greatest need is the forgiveness of our sins, the salvation of our souls, being made in the likeness of Jesus Christ, the eternal smile of God. But we should add, everything that we need which, which leads to all of that is included in the all things. There's no deprivation. Nothing is left unfulfilled. But thirdly, the third one is that there is no accusation. There is no accusation. Even the guilt that still haunts us. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God. Who justifies. What have you done? What have you said? What have you thought? What disposition have you harbored? That would cause you. To begin. To begin to wander in your thinking. To this notion of. I don't, I don't know if God is really for me, pleased with me. There is no accusation. Our text uses the language, who shall bring a charge? Who shall bring this? That's that accusation word, okay? It's the judicial imagery again. Can you imagine the courtroom scene again? As the argument is being laid out by Jesus... On our behalf, the sound of voices around us, perhaps even our own heart, overheard over and over again. I object. I object. The judge says, there's no accusation against this one. Satan, of course, we know, is the accuser of the brethren, right? 
Satan does that. We read about it in Job chapter 1, especially the scriptures clearly lay it out for us that this is what Satan does. He loves to accuse the brethren. He seeks to bring charges against us. But also, in our, perform our performance mentality, we often accuse ourselves. It's not hard for me to go into that performance mentality and accuse myself. Because we know we are guilty. But Paul insists that we look beyond that. Yes, Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. And no one can make oneself or declare oneself righteous. And if that's the case, then how is salvation possible? Our text tells us it is God who justifies it is God who justifies. If, you know, if, if you would give me a week, we can unpack Paul's teaching on justification. Don't have a week, so therefore we will move forward. But it is God who justifies. Bringing charges against us is to no avail. Because it is against God's elect. And we read it in 28 to 30. Waste of time to bring charges against us. Because of Christ, there it is, because of Christ, God is able both, to, both just, to be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 3 again in verse 26. It's worth reading word for word. 3.26 says. It is. <clears throat> it was to show the righteousness. At the present time. His righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just. And the justifier. Of the one. Who has faith. In Jesus Christ. Our sin has been judged in our Savior. He is the one who was judged in the courtroom of heaven on our behalf. The guilt of all that sin, all of it is gone. So there is no point to any accusation Satan's accusation against God's elect, our accusation against ourselves is futile. A, a waste of time and mental energy, misdirected focus. This, uh, despite the fact that we continue to sin, the highest court in the universe has declared us not guilty. And you see, it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. Not our performance. And that's part of the application of what our precious pastor taught us for so many years. The locus of our focus, right? It's all about Christ. Not our performance. Well, fourthly, there is no 
condemnation. There is no condemnation in spite of the reality that we never measure up. Verse 34 goes on to say, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, intercede, who indeed is interceding for us. There's no condemnation. You remember, Paul speaks frankly about his own wretchedness in chapter 7. But he concludes, the beginning of uh, chapter 8, that because of Christ, in Christ, he is not condemned in spite of his wretchedness. Our consciences often condemn us for our sin. Now, be thankful for your conscience. Be thankful that the Spirit does this for us because in it, the Spirit is leading us to put to death the deeds of the body. That's what we want to do. We desire to be righteous before God. And when we fail in that, our conscience tells us, look what you've done. Look who you are. Look at this attitude. Listen to your words. Look at the eyes of the person you've just offended. Remember who you are. But there is no condemnation in that because God does not, cannot condemn us. Something of a bold statement there. Why? Our text tells us because Jesus Christ died. The condemnation of our sin was placed on him. The wages of sin is death. He died. And Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. You see this? The resurrection is significant at many levels, but one of the levels that's significant for us is that not only, more than just the fact that Jesus died, he was raised and his ministry on our behalf is at this very moment. He intercedes for us. Right now, Jesus sits at the place of power and authority at God's right hand. He is now enthroned at God's right hand. This is his glorification according to Psalm 110. And he is interceding for us. Applying the reality of our union with him. This is his imputation of his righteousness. His righteousness into us. He is praying for our needs. And reminding the father that his blood covers all our sin. Because of this, condemnation is impossible. We cannot be condemned. There is no condemnation. God does not condemn us. We must stop condemning ourselves. 1 John 3.20 tells us, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. And finally, there is no separation. While we engage with the harsh realities of a fallen world, 
In verses 36 through the end of the chapter, verse 39, we realize there is no separation. That's where we are. That's where we stay in the bosom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Consequently, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's not that he likes us. He loves us. Paul writing, was writing here to a people who were soon to face persecution, the church at Rome. And perhaps persecution is in store for us. Are we not beginning to see storm clouds mounting on the horizon against Christians in this country. And so Paul names all the things that might seem to have some ability to separate us from God's love. And he denies that they have any power to do so. It's true that God's people experience these things, but not as punishment, brothers and sisters. It's not as punishment. It's not because he is frowning at us. But rather, the sin, pain, loss, and even death are all very real. But none of them can separate us from God's love. Rather, the text tells us in all these things, we are, mm, listen to this, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How are we more than conquerors? <laughs> Not only do these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, a sword. Not only do these things not accomplish their intended purpose to separate us from the love of God, but they even work together for our good. Verse 28, we are more than conquerors, but the victory is not ours. It is only through him who loved us. Once again, it's about Christ, not about our performance. It is only through him that loved us that this happens. And so, do I hear someone say, ah, but I am not worthy of such love? I reply, exactly. Exactly. None of us are worthy. But it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is worthy. So again, here is the greatness of God's heart. These five affirmations should, I trust, encourage us and give us confidence, unshakable confidence, knowing that God is for us, provides us with the confidence and strength to endure hardship, persevere through spiritual struggles, suffer need to face anything. Why? Because we know the loving heart of God we have seen it in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm very quickly going to read a selection from the Valley of Vision that is so precious. Um, I want to do it. I know that as typical, I'm stretching my time limits, but this is good enough. They can wait. 
See, they can hear. Thou eternal God, thine is surpassing greatness, unspeakable goodness, super abundant grace. I can as soon count the sands of ocean's lip as number thy favors toward me. I know but a part, but that part exceeds all praise. I thank thee for personal mercies, a measure of health, preservation of body, comforts of house and home, sufficiency of food and clothing, continuance of mental powers, my family, their mutual help and support, my delights of domestic harmony and peace, the seats now filled that might have been vacant, my country, church, Bible, faith. But oh, how I mourn my sin. Ingratitude, vileness, the days that add to my guilt, the scenes that witness my offending tongue. All things in heaven, earth, around, within, without condemn me. The sun which sees my misdeeds, the darkness which is light to thee. The cruel accuser who justly charges me, the good angels who have been provoked to leave me. Thy countenance which scans my secret sins, thy righteous law, thy holy word, my sin-soiled conscience, my private and public life, my neighbors, myself, all write dark things against me. I deny them not. Frame no excuse, but confess, Father, I have sinned, yet still I live. And fly repenting to thy outstretched arms. Thou wilt not cast me off. For Jesus brings me near. Thou wilt not condemn me. For he died in my stead. Thou wilt not mark my mountains of sin. For he leveled all. And his beauty covers my deformities. Oh my God. I bid farewell to sin by clinging to his cross hiding in his wounds and sheltering in his side. May you rest in the loving heart of God for you in Christ and be unshakable in your confidence. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the pen of Paul who portrayed to us your heart on our behalf, how we praise you. And Father, we know that one of the marks of an evidence of your love toward us is that you've gathered us all together even this day to as a corporate body worship you with hearts full of thanksgiving and joy. So bless our time this, uh, afterward. Be with our brother as he brings forth your word of God and may we rejoice in the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. We thank you in prayer. Amen.